This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. We have not been formally taught how to take a sleep history. Find out how important this is and how it helps us formulate and understand what the issues may be in patients suffering from daytime sleepiness. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Anup Desai. Dr. Desai, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a sleep and respiratory physician. I've, um, I've been out in clinical practice for a long time. I initially did uh, research work. I did a PhD in sleep medicine and did some postdoctoral work in England. Uh, a lot of my research was along the lines of sleep apnea and driving. Um, more recently, I'm predominantly a clinician. I work at Prince Wales Public Hospital. I work at Sydney Sleep Centre in the city and in, in Ramwick in private rooms. Um, so my main expertise is in sleep disorders. I do a lot of sleep disorders management as an outpatient. Probably 98% of my patients would be sleep. And it's a broad range of sleep conditions, not just snoring or sleep apnea. I will look at restless legs, insomnia, narcolepsy, um, parasomnia, sleep sex, the weird and wonderful, all of that comes to my rooms regularly. Anup, I am so glad you mentioned such a huge range of sleep disorders because that immediately sets our mind to the fact that often we think about obstructive sleep apnea and restless legs and full stop. But let's start from the basics. Today, I would like to look at, first of all, the key features of a sleep history. It's a very interesting question, David, um, to, to cover this, because the reality is this has never really been taught. I don't think doctors have been taught this at all. Sleep specialists are not taught it. Um, specialist physicians are not taught it. There's no real textbooks that go through this. Sleep medicine is a fairly new specialty. And I think it's fair to say that those of us that practice predominantly in sleep medicine, like myself, we've, we've obviously got a lot of knowledge that we've learned over the years through our research, through our clinical work and our experience and training. But we've, we've developed a lot of skills ourselves and we, we have certain frameworks and processes that really come from years of experience and, and, and that knowledge. But the point is, it's not necessarily written down in the textbook. So what I'm going to say to you, David, about a sleep history is what I do, and I think it it covers the key features. And clearly, if you think there's holes in there, by all means, pick them out. But I, I, I doubt it's anywhere. And that's why this is probably quite an interesting podcast, perhaps, to, to you and the others, because where would you get this information apart? Mm. I'm hearing it from clinicians that are actually seeing patients and trying to unravel all the, all the conditions. Um, so look, with that introduction, we, we're thinking about the key features of a sleep history. Um, so I mean, with a respiratory history, of course, you know, you know to ask about things like breathlessness, wheeze, airways disease, smoking history, and all of that's drummed up to us in medical school. But the sleep history, I challenge anyone to show me anything useful they've been given in medical school. Mm. I, I think there's three aspects when you take a history of a patient. I think you need to ask about sleep timing and duration, which I'll, I'll come to, of course. Mm -hmm. You need to ask about excessive daytime sleepiness. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, you need to ask specific questions regarding specific conditions that are, that are known sleep disorders. Mm -hmm. So if I break that down, I think one of the most important series of questions is about sleep timing and, and duration. So what I mean about that is 
You ask them, you know, when do they go to bed? When do they fall asleep? When do they wake up in the morning? When do they get out of bed? And just those four questions or those four anchor points in a sleep history give us so much information. So for instance, let's say they go to bed and they're awake for a few hours. So they're not falling asleep for, for some time. Well, you're already identifying a bit of an insomnia issue. Let's say they wake up at four in the morning and get out of bed at six in the morning because they can't sleep the last two hours. Again, you're identifying sleep maintenance insomnia. Let's say they go to bed at about two in the morning, fall asleep at 2.30, get up around midday. Maybe there's a sleep phase condition here, like a delayed sleep phase disorder. Let's say they're only in bed in for five hours and they have to go to work early. They go to bed late or they're sleep restricted. So hopefully you can see by just asking them, when do you get into bed? When do you fall asleep? When do you wake up? When do you get out of bed? Understanding the timing and the relationship of you know, those points to each other, you already start to identify so many of these non-respiratory sleep disorders that I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. Are they just simply sleep restricted? Are they sleepy because they don't get enough sleep? Or do mm -hmm. they have insomnia, which is an incredibly common condition, of course, causing a lot of daytime symptoms? Or is their condition a sleep phase? Do they have an advanced sleep phase where they're falling asleep in the evening, waking up in the early morning and can't get back to sleep? Or are they like the teenager where they'd rather sleep at 2, 3 in the morning, get up at midday? but of course have to get up for school and end up sleep restricted and falling asleep in class. So, um, so I think that sleep timing and sleep duration are, are really important questions. And it, if you don't take that in the history, your interpretation of things like daytime sleepiness is impossible, I think, or it's at least meaningless. And, and I think this is you know part of the pitfalls of sleep medicine because if people are just asking about daytime sleepiness without reference to what's actually happening at nighttime and then just asking about obstructive sleep apnea, do you see all the information we're missing here? Yep. Because we're missing all those non-respiratory sleep disorders. We're missing all these other inputs to what affects alertness during the day. Mm -hmm. So sleep timing and duration is important. I think that's just a bare, bare minimum. So the next key feature, I think, is excessive daytime sleepiness. And we need to realize here that excessive daytime sleepiness has lots of causes. So a lot of us immediately jump to conditions like obstructive sleep apnea as a known cause of daytime sleepiness. But as I just said, people may be sleepy during the day because they're sleep restricted. They're just not in bed for long enough. They're getting up early for work. Um, they're going to be a little bit too late. They're not spending enough time in bed. And you don't want to necessarily treat their obstructive sleep apnea because you're thinking the sleepiness is due to that when in fact it's due to sleep restriction. Sleepiness during the day can be due to their medications. It can be due to mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. Lots of people, of course, will have insomnia where they have difficulty going to sleep. They wake up, they can't get back to sleep. They have frequent arousals overnight. And that in, a, in itself could cause tiredness, fatigue and sleepiness. And, and we mentioned things like um, delayed sleep phase conditions where if people go to bed late, but they wake up a little bit early, then, of course, they're going to be sleepy in the morning because their sleep rhythm wants them to be drowsy. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm emphasizing all these things is because if you're asking about sleepiness, um, you need to realize that there are several different causes. And when it comes to treating your patient and treating a particular condition, you need to somehow tease out in your own head, well, how much of that sleepiness is due to just not enough sleep versus their sleep apnea? Yeah. Because this is, this is the key. Because, of course, if in that situation, if you don't increase their hours but just treat their apnea, mm -hmm. they're not going to get better. And you're both going to be scratching your head thinking, why is this person still sleepy? So this is why understanding the cause of sleepiness is very important. Um, so how do we do that? Well, obviously, we, we ask about 
these other sleep conditions. And to some extent, the sleep timing and duration has covered some of those conditions. We're taking a broad history, understanding the other health conditions. Do they have anxiety, depression? Do they have chronic neurological diseases? You're asking about their medications. And then you're asking about the level of sleepiness. So many people will be familiar with things like the Epworth Sleepiness mm -hmm. School, which asks students to rate their level of sleepiness in eight commonly different situations. That's a very good score, and that gives you a bit of an idea of, of sleepiness. Alternatively, you can just ask them, of course, yourself questions about how likely they to fall asleep, you know, watching television, relaxing on the couch, maybe reading, maybe at work, in breaks, during work meetings. And there's obviously lots of situational factors that you ask about. And you'll start to get with time a bit of a calibration yourself of how sleepy you think they are. Mm -hmm. Boys, boys, of course, should ask about sleepiness while driving, um, which we'll probably come back to later. And then the other key thing about that sleepiness that gives you an idea, of course, too, is when did it begin? So if they've been sleepy all their life, in inverted commas, or, you know, very much from their teenage years to their early 20s, falling asleep in lectures at university, um, not going to social engagements because they're too sleepy, sleeping the whole weekend when they can, that very much suggests conditions like, you know, narcolepsy or primary hypersomnolence conditions, these more central disorders of sleepiness rather than something like obstructive sleep apnea, which is more common in middle age. So trying to get a sense of where it began and was there a reason why it began now? For instance, not uncommonly, someone will present with snoring and daytime sleepiness. And when you ask about the sleepiness, you'll realise um, it's got worse in the last five years and they've gained 10 kilograms of weight in the last five years. So you'll instantly be thinking in your head, well, yes, maybe they've got sleep apnea, maybe they've gained a lot of weight and maybe a lot of their sleepiness is now due to their sleep apnea. Um, but of course, you've asked lots of other questions to make sure that you, it's not these other conditions like, you know, medications or short sleep. Mm -hmm. So the severity of excessive daytime sleepiness is, is basically a, a qualitative thing, largely, so you, you, based on your own series of questions. But of course, you can use things like the Epworth score. Um, but trying to get the duration is important, too, just in case um, it's not a more recent condition. It's a long term condition that's not been picked up for many years. Um, and with duration, you know, you'll tease out things like medications. They might say, oh, yeah, it all started when I started the antidepressant or they're on, you know, three psychotropic medications. And they'll even tell you the answers, patients. They'll say, I think it's my medication. <laughs> they say that to you. They're probably right. So we need to think, OK, the medication's a factor here. What are the other factors? Is it sleep apnea? Is it insomnia? Is it lack of sleep? And of course, there can be multiple factors. So, yeah, we need to ask about how sleepy they are, when it began, and start to explore other causes of sleepiness in that more general history. One thing you mentioned, and I don't know where to fit in, uh, are frequent arousals. Yeah, frequent arousals. Arousals are, are a slightly um, a complex kind of discussion point. There's different types of arousals. So the arousals that patients will describe, are, I guess, if you like, macro arousals. They, they say, I wake up several times overnight. But as you know, um, people during sleep studies will have many, many micro arousals, very short arousals they won't remember. And we record that in sleep studies. And there's, a, there's an index called the arousal index that we'll, we'll talk about with due cause. So when patients talk about arousals, they're talking about waking up such that they remember. But the reality, they're often having lots of mini arousals they don't remember. And if someone has obstructive sleep apnea, for instance, their brain's waking up constantly and not uncommonly, the patient will say, I sleep right through the night. I sleep fine, doctor. Um, but in fact, we know their brain's waking up due to the apnea, but they're only waking up for like three, five, maybe 10 seconds. 
and, and then going back to sleep and not remembering the arousals. But of course, it's that fragmentation of sleep, the arousals, the micro arousals, that's causing the sleepiness during the day in conditions like obstructive sleep apnea. Thank you for mentioning that because I think you will be teaching us how to interpret a sleep study report on another podcast. Yes. Thanks, David. So I guess the third aspect of the history is then um, to ask about particular conditions. So, so far, we've just got a broad idea of timing and duration, and, and hopefully you can see how that's important. We've understood how sleepy they are and got a sense of when it started and maybe the relationship of that sleepiness to, to their whole lifespan, to medications, to chronic health conditions, to weight change, to lifestyle factors, work and, and, and duration of sleep. Um, but then, of course, we now need to ask about known sleep conditions and, and cover the other kind of symptom complexes that we might have missed. So the obvious ones are, of course, asking about obstructive sleep apnea. We all know to ask whether patients snore. Do they stop breathing? Do partners notice it? Do they themselves wake up gasping or choking? Do partners notice either of these things? Um, and of course, these diagnoses are not mutually exclusive. Quite commonly, someone will have symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea and symptoms of insomnia. And we call that comesa, comorbid, comorbid insomnia sleep apnea. It's a known condition, a known comorbid condition. So we're going to ask in our history about specific conditions. We're asking about obstructive sleep apnea. Um, we're going to ask a little bit more about insomnia. So let's say they give us a history that they are spending long periods in bed awake when we ask about sleep timing and duration. Well, we park that in our, in, our, in our thoughts. And then when it comes down to it, we then later ask more about the insomnia. So are they, awake, are they awake more at the start of the night? Are they awake more at the end of the night? Or is it more in the middle of the night? Is it a sleep initiation problem or a sleep maintenance problem? And, and these things can suggest different causes. Uh, maybe their insomnia is in the setting of shift work, for instance. Maybe they have um, in the setting of insomnia a lot of fear of sleep. A lot of people say they get, they're too frightened to go to sleep because they know they're just going to be a lie awake and they're, they're just going to be alert and the whole thing becomes very unpleasant and frustrating and anxiety-provoking. So quite commonly, people talk about that fear of going to sleep. And that, that is a hallmark feature of insomnia. But it also tells you that there's really strong cognitive aspects to their insomnia. In other words, the way they think about sleep during the day, the way they set themselves up for sleep, they're already starting to dread it even before they go to sleep. They've got a lot of sleep anxiety. Mm -hmm. and, and that tells you that's a big factor why they don't sleep. But more importantly, it tells you the importance of things like cognitive behavioral therapy there where the C bit is the cognitive bit. So the sleep psychologist will introduce lots of C cognitive work to reduce that anxiety, to deal with the, the misconceptions, the, the ideas that propagate it. Mm -hmm. This again comes out in the history because you start to hear from them, oh, yeah, I feel going to bed, I'm too scared to go to bed because I just know I'll be awake and the whole thing is a disaster. Um, they start to catastrophize. They start mm -hmm. to say, I'll never sleep and, you know, and my life's a mess. And again, you can see how these excessive thoughts are not helpful. And again, this is part of the cognitive bit of the cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, so we want to identify this kind of stuff in the history. Many people, when they can't sleep with insomnia, what they think is, oh, God, I only got two hours sleep last night. I'm going to go to bed at 6 p.m. tomorrow night. I'm going to be in bed for 12 hours. I'm bound to sleep and I'll be good. But, of course, that's the exact wrong thing to do because all they then do is lie in bed for longer periods awake and their sleep becomes more inefficient and they build up the wakefulness response in bed they build up the anxiety and the frustration in bed and, and they feel like they've lost control and, and they've even got less, less methods of controlling their condition. So, so understanding of the history, how much time they're spending in bed, 
and also what they do in bed. Are they watching television? Are they reading? Are they doing very stimulating things? Are they actually looking at their phone even though they know they shouldn't? Will help you give you an idea of the causes of their insomnia or the ways to get it better. Many people, of course, have tried treatments over the years for their insomnia. So when you're taking in insomnia history, you want to understand what medications they've tried. But more importantly, you want to understand the non-drug treatments that they might have tried. A lot of people will describe sort of, you know, reasonably straightforward sleep hygiene practices that are readily available on the internet or, or through people just discussing things. And they will have tried that to their to the you know end of the earth. But of course, they're not better. And that's because sleep hygiene strategies for insomnia only have limited impact. And the best approaches are the much more intensive or comprehensive sleep psychologist-based CBT approaches. But we need to get this out in the history. We need to say, well, what have you done? What have you tried? And most people have not gone through what would be regarded as gold standard treatments, which is psychologist-based CBT. So yeah, when you identify features of insomnia, you're going to ask a whole range of questions to try to tease out some of these cognitive factors, time in bed, certain habits and routines. Do they get up at the same time in the morning? Do they get much light in the morning? Are they doing exercise just before bed that's alerting? Um, caffeine, alcohol to some extent, medications, non-drug treatments. Um, so this is what I mean about asking very specific questions, you know, as the last tier of that sleep history. Now, that's very clear, and I really appreciate that, Anup. My question is, where do we find sleep psychologists? Sleep psychologists are hard to find and hard to access, and it is a challenge, absolutely. So I think you've got three options. So you could look at your general psychologists, which I know are very hard to find, of course, as well. Um, and some of them may choose to do some sleep. Some of them may be very good at it. Good at it. Some of them, um, to be fair, concentrate on all the other conditions that they're much better at and don't concentrate on sleep. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be uncommon at all for me to see a patient who's seen a psychologist for 10 years. They've had chronic insomnia for 15 years, and obviously the insomnia has never been addressed by the psychologist. Mm -hmm. So clearly, um, if the general psychologist can't or won't or isn't doing sleep, then you need to move on. I personally have a bias towards sending them to sleep psychologists because I can access them, of course. So in terms of the other two ways, well, there's, there's sleep-focused CBT, which is delivered either by a sleep psychologist or there are online programs now. So I generally give my patients three alternatives. I've got two online programs that um, I can give them access to. And then the third is seen as sleep psychologist one-on-one. -on -one. So we do have CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy, that's now delivered through the internet. Um, and there's various different um, programs that have developed around the world. Some of them overseas-based, some of them local-based, and their apps or their, their videos and, and workbooks. And they've got good content. Obviously, the patient needs to click on it and do all the work, and, not, and they don't really have the ability to ask questions. Mm. So it's perhaps not as good as face-to-face, -face, but it suits many people, and it's a pretty good first or second tier of management, um, depending on how committed they are. So, yeah, I think that would be a good advance that we have over the last maybe five to seven years. There's a lot more of this online stuff. And, of course, it's not just in sleep. I'm sure it exists there for depression, anxiety, and a whole lot of other mental health conditions. So, so there has been a lot of difficulty accessing sleep psychologists for many years, but that provides a bit of a useful alternative. Um, but I do also would love to have access to more sleep psychologists. Our practice has one, but we don't have enough. I'm always saying to her, can you do some more work? Can you see more patients? Because you know, patients just can't get in as easy as we'd like them to get in. Mm -hmm. I do believe quite strongly that, that sleep psychology is, is a really powerful and, and probably the best treatment for insomnia, chronic insomnia. 
you were going to tell us about specific questions about specific conditions. Yeah, so we, we sort of talked about obstructive sleep apnea, the, the obvious symptoms you would ask there. We, we In a patient that we identified insomnia, when we're asking about sleep time and duration, we went on and asked more questions about their insomnia that starts to give us an idea of some of the drivers of their insomnia with a view to working out how to treat them. Some of the other sleep disorders include conditions like restless leg syndrome. Now, you might be thinking, um, you know, that's a very discreet condition where people, you know, have, you know, an uncomfortable feeling in their legs. They feel like they need to move their legs and they get fidgeting in their legs and it occurs when they're awake in the evenings. But the reality is it's also a cause of insomnia because what can happen in people with restless legs? And you need to ask them this question, do they actually get the symptoms in bed? And does it stop you going to sleep? That's the key mm. question for restless legs, for, for sleep physicians at least. How often is it occurring in bed? And is it one of the causes of their, of their sleep initiation insomnia? And sometimes it is. So sometimes people will describe insomnia. They say, yeah, my legs, you know, they, they're present half the week. And that's a significant reason why I don't fall asleep. That's actually fantastic because that's a really easy condition to diagnose and treat. It's an easy win. Mm -hmm. I love it when they say that. They probably don't say it often enough, unfortunately. But again, this is why it's important to understand that they have sleep initiation insomnia. And then you ask them questions about restless legs and you suddenly think, wow, if I treat the legs, maybe I can get this person sleeping. At the same time, restless leg syndrome is also associated with kicking movements in sleep. So that's what's called periodic limb movements. So you can ask about whether they kick their legs in their sleep or partners notice that. Mm -hmm. If that occurs, that's sometimes causing arousals and that, that might also be contributing to daytime tiredness or sleepiness. Other more discrete kind of sleep disorders would be things like parasomnias. You're not going to ask about them routinely. So what we're talking about there is sleepwalking, sleep terrors, REM behavior disorder where people act out their dreams. Usually they present with that kind of history. They're describing some sort of talking or vocalization or movement in sleep. And then you're often asking a series of questions around those conditions, or perhaps more realistically, you might be referring that patient on. So that might not be part of a routine sleep history, but of course they may say, look, I'm, I'm sleepy during the day, but I'm also acting out my dream. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having these vivid dreams and I hit my partner, I punched mm -hmm. a wall. And then you need to start thinking, oh, parasomnias, what are all the questions about parasomnias? Um, but that is a fairly specialised area, at least in, in terms of questions, and we can go into that as much or as, as little as you want. I just want to touch on that other group of sleep disorders that I think it's important to be aware of, and that's what I called before those primary hypersomnolence conditions or central disorders of sleepiness. So these are non-breathing disorders in sleep, like narcolepsy or where, when people are excessively sleepy, usually sort of their whole life, and they've got high levels of sleepiness or high sleep needs. And it's not due to a breathing problem. It's not due to lack of sleep. It's not due to insomnia. It's not due to a delete sleep phase condition. And these conditions are often easily missed. They're often missed for many years by GPs, by sleep specialists, by other physicians, by everybody. And patients just by the end of it think they're depressed or they're lazy. They can never understand their high sleep need or while they're sleepy. Some of them are quite frustrated by it. But eventually it comes to a head and maybe someone clicks on the diagnosis and we realize, you know what? There's a long history of sleepiness and all these other reasons they were putting down to sleep apnea, lack of sleep, kids, work, they just don't exist. It, this actually is a sleep condition that they've got. And the, you know, the light bulb moment when that happens and, and the amount of good you can do for a patient in that situation is amazing. So I think the key there is recognizing the length of the sleepiness. When did it begin? Did it occur when they were really young, before they gain weight, before there are any features of apnea? 
and before there are other um, factors on their sleep, like such as lack of sleep or kids and you know, various aspects of disruption. Um, so that is, a, is an important question in, in the sleep history. Whilst the history can give away the primary, if you like, uh, central disorders, I, I, I guess it's a cue to refer because um, they probably need to be confirmed, don't they, this diagnosis? Yeah, they are hard conditions to diagnose, to be honest, and, and you do need to sort of rule out a lot of factors and probably one of the commonest confounding factors would be mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. So depression in particular is associated with high levels of tiredness or sleepiness. They've often got a history of depression or they're, or they're on antidepressant treatment and they've got a long history of sleepiness. And you, you're sort of wondering, well, do they have a primary condition that's to do with sleep or is it their depression or is it due to their medications? And all these things are bouncing around in your head and it's not always straightforward. Mm -hmm. To some extent, it becomes a big prag bit pragmatic at one point, at one point, because let's say their depression's optimally controlled, they've been seeing psychiatrists and or psychologists for years, they've been on stable antidepressant therapy, and we can talk you know, for hours about which is the cause, but at the end of the day, they've still got the symptom, they're still sleepy, they still want to be treated. So in my, in my opinion, there's a limit to how much we have to really try to define the cause. Sometimes we have to just get down to treating them. So then what do we do next? So when we're satisfied that we've ruled out other treatable causes like depression, sleep apnea, fiddle with medications, check their bloods and ruled out other causes of sleepiness, if you do think they've got a narcolepsy or one of these more idiopathic hypersomnolence conditions, we then do sleep studies in a laboratory. In particular, we do daytime sleepiness tests, and that's what we call a multiple sleep latency test. And what we do in that situation is the person stays overnight in the laboratory and then the next day, we ask them to sleep during the day in the lab on four different occasions. Mm -hmm. And we measure their level of sleepiness and we see how it compares to, to normal populations in the same lab environment. And if they've got high levels of sleepiness, then we usually say, yep, you've got high levels of objective sleepiness. That matches your history. You know, we can't find another cause. You've got idiopathic hypersomnolence or, or you've got narcolepsy or whatever it happens to be. So it usually requires, I'm sure that would always be done at specialist level. So if you do think there's, a history of excessive sleepiness, high sleep needs, going back long years, and other causes have been ruled out. You'd send them to a sleep specialist, mm -hmm. take their history, we'd probably put them in the lab, we do an overnight study and, and a daytime sleepiness test. And then usually at that point, we've got a clear idea of whether they got the condition or not. Mm, thank you. That's a very clear step forward. Uh, one that many patients, in fact, might well need, but are not given opportunity to actually undergo this test. The question is, access, is it difficult to uh, access these sorts of tests? It, it's, it's, a, it's harder than a routine diagnostic test. For a start, it can't be done at home. So as you know, there's lots of home diagnostic tests. Secondly, it needs to be organised by a sleep physician or a sleep and respiratory physician, and it needs to be done in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. so access, you know, you need to get to the physician and then you'd get the laboratory test. I, I don't have a a great sense of access around the country to labs. I'm in a very fortunate situation in Sydney where I'm surrounded by some good labs and, and fairly quick access to, to excellent countries, public or private, where we can do this kind of testing, but I'm sure it varies. Um, but I think in general, labs are probably not as busy as they used to be, and access is, is better than you think. And, and obviously, they've had this condition for a long time, and, and if the physician um, you know, is, is doing a lot of this kind of work. They've usually got their pathways of getting people sorted out without too much fuss. So we've got a, um, a multiple sleep latency test done. What other tests do um, sleep physicians do that GPs may not be aware of? 
So the, the probably the main test sleep physicians would do are the diagnostic sleep studies, which GPs are very aware of. We do hospital-based CPAP studies, which, which I will talk about. Um, we do the multiple sleep latency test, which we just talked about. We also do a maintenance of wakefulness test. So that's like the reverse of the sleep latency test. That's probably a good one to talk about at this point. So in this situation, the person's slept overnight in the laboratory, and then we've asked them to stay awake during the day for 40 minutes at a time on four different occasions. Now, you might be thinking, why in the hell would we do that? Well, it's a test of alertness. It's a test of vigilance. So it becomes particularly important in the settings of driving. So probably two good examples are, might be a very excessively sleepy young person that first sees you, I'm sleepy all the time, I'm falling asleep all the time, I've had an accident falling asleep or I fall asleep driving, I've stopped driving, and then you diagnose them with narcolepsy and you put them on treatment and they're doing pretty well. Often in a situation like that, particularly when they've reported high levels of sleepiness, including driving, you'll then do a maintenance of wakefulness test where you measure their alertness in the lab on treatment mm. and you show the reverse. They can be alert, they can be vigilant, and that's like a surrogate of reduced driving risk, as in, and it's mentioned in the Osroad Fitness to Drive guidelines that this maintenance of wakefulness test, this alertness test, gives some objective evidence that they're fit to drive. So we use it in those cases of severe hypersomnolence to show the alertness. Um, they're often very important in occupational settings. So not uncommonly, you know, someone's fallen asleep at the wheel, maybe it's a truck driver or, or some sort of, I had a guy that works in the tunnels the other day, fell asleep in the tunnel, an electrician. And then, of course, they're sent to you from work. You know, does he have a sleep disorder? Can they drive? Um, and often in situations like that, you want to do the maintenance of wakefulness test again, just to show the alertness and say, you know what? They satisfy this alertness test. They're okay. Maybe they'll just sleep deprived the night before. They don't have sleep apnea on the test. They're alert. They're all good. So the alertness test is, is quite useful to assess the effect of treatment in people with severe hypersomnolence or to show that people are alert in occupational settings. And they're for some of those severe sleep apnea patients that we're all treating, that we're worried that they're not on treatment, we're worried for lots of reasons, but patients may person, personally accept the risk of health problems, but what we can't accept as doctors is road risk. Mm -hmm. so in those cases, if they're not on treatment and they've got you know moderate or severe sleep apnea or high levels of sleepiness, they need to have the maintenance of wakefulness test in a lab to show they're alert if they're going to keep driving safely. So that's the other really important use for people that aren't on treatment. Of, for conditions like sleep apnea, refuse to be on treatment or won't tolerate or whatever, but continue to drive, again, satisfying the fitness to drive guidelines. Um, so that is a, quite an important test as well in, in certain discrete situations. A, a quick question. If a GP is aware that his or her patient has severe sleep apnea, refuses treatment and does not discuss the risk of driving, does not do a maintenance wakefulness test, patients go for a drive, has an accident and seriously injures somebody or worse, who is at fault? Well, that, that's a very good question. And um, I would argue in the situation, and these, these things I don't think have really been tested, though at least that I'm aware of. I do do a lot of driver fatigue kind of medical legals, but these, these are the key questions, but they don't quite seem to get tested in that sense. Thank God, actually, for the medical profession. Um, a lot of the discussions revolve around work schedules or awareness of sleepiness but to answer your question if the gp hasn't or any doctor in fact has not discussed issues of driving and not considered driving risk in their assessment of their sleep history and that person then has an accident 
the patient can quite reasonably say, I think, well, I'm not the doctor. He didn't say anything about driving. How am I supposed to know? Mm. Um, I fell asleep. That's not my problem. Go and talk to the doctor. And I suspect that that's a reasonable legal argument. In other words, it's our responsibility, according to the guidelines, to inform the patient of the risks associated with driving if we're concerned about driving, if there's an issue of a sleep disorder or any condition, epilepsy, diabetes, the rest of them, right? It's our responsibility to make sure the patient understands the risk and then notifies the relevant driver's license authority, this is at least for New South Wales, and we should document in our notes that we've explained that risk and, and what we've said. And in cases where we're worried, then we need to outline a, them about high-risk driving situations to avoid, maybe limit driving, maybe expedite um, sleep assessment and management. So to answer your question, if we don't ask the questions or address it or think about it and document it and something happens, I think we're liable. But wow. if we ask the questions and we document it and make sure the patient understands it, then now they assume individual responsibility. And that would be very powerful if this issue ever came up in a court of law, I think. And it all comes, it's basically informed consent in a, yes. in a variation. And you guys are all over informed consent and the importance of that. And if a doctor doesn't explain the risk of an operation, and that risk happens to a patient, we'll all say, well, I, no one told me about that. But of course, if they explained it and that happens, well, that's a different discussion. I think driving is the same. I just think that certainly the role of the maintenance wakefulness test becomes quite important for some patients. Yeah, I use it a lot in that sense. And what I say to patients, because it's a, it's a pain for them to do because they've got to take a day off work, I say, you know what? This is mentioned in the guidelines. It's the best thing for everybody. It's best for you. So if you have an accident, you say, you know what? I saw Dr. Desai. He talked all about driving. He made me do this alertness test. I'm good. And I say, well, I did the alertness test and he was good. Do you know what I mean? It's actually yes. good for everybody. It fits the guidelines. It works for the patient. It works for the doctor. So in those cases that are a bit hairy, where we're worried about it or they're truck drivers. And every, every two years, I might even do an alertness test. Train drivers, pilots, not uncommonly. A lot of the regulatory authorities like CASA, you know, the Pilots Association, they know about these tests. Sometimes they ask for them there. Um, there's a lot of knowledge about the important assessing vigilance in occupational settings. And remember, there are a lot of occupational, you know, affected individuals, um, you know, from pilots to bus to train drivers to truck drivers, you know, to people yes. on the road all the time. Even forklift drivers have commercial licences. We can go in so many directions, but before we look at, uh, if you like, the basics of what a sleep study, this is a diagnostic sleep study shows, I just wonder whether we should have a quick discussion about the multiple uh, places now that offers patients sleep studies and the pitfalls uh, if, a, if a GP is not really aware uh, of what they actually do and which ones are actually, if you like, reliable and those that are not reliable. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a very challenging area. So, you know, monthly, yearly, there's always there's new operators working in the sleep medicine place. And, and quite sadly, in my opinion, um, I think there's chemists doing, you know, very uh, limited sleep studies, what we call type three, type four sleep studies. And, and then they're, they're forming opinions with uncertain sleep experience and knowledge at, at that level, mm. and, and telling people to do certain treatments or not do treatments. And, and that, in my opinion, goes against the whole of sleep medicine management. Mm -hmm. We should be taking a proper sleep history. We need knowledge, experience, and training. And look at what we're talking about today, about what goes into that input um, to assess the range of sleep conditions. And then we need to do a test. 
that that preferably would be a level two sleep study at the very least, so a comprehensive home-based sleep study or a lab study. But then more importantly, we need to then assess the patient in the context of their test result. So just because they've had a test, which could be a variable accuracy, um, it doesn't mean that you've solved everything just by looking at one number on a piece of page. You need to look mm -hmm. at their symptoms. Uh, maybe they've got insomnia symptoms and they've got mild apnea. Maybe their mild apnea doesn't need to be treated. So it, the assessment of the patient is about a reasonable history. It's about some sort of diagnostic test. And then it's about an dis informed discussion of the result in that context with discussion of treatment options and discussion of driving. See, all of this, I think, is pretty reasonable and standard. You do it in every other aspect of medicine. So why do you get sent a limited home sleep study device in the mail, do that at home, post it back and get sent a CPAP mask? I don't understand how that... Wow. Well, so, so really, let's have a look at the places that don't actually assess the patient in the context of the results and the ones who actually uh, don't do a level two sleep study. So you mentioned that some chemists do uh, level three and four. There are a lot of commercial type, you know, sleep study places, or they call themselves sleep clinics. One cannot tell when one is driven by, if you like, a professional, I sell devices versus a sleep clinic that is actually run by sleep physicians. How do we tell, how do we find the difference? So look, it's really tricky and I, I need to be careful here, obviously, David, and, and I'm obviously only an opinion here, but I guess the key thing is not uncommonly, a lot of these services need a medical referral. So that's a GP referral. Now, your, your referral is has carries with a lot of responsibility. It's not just, here's this bit of paper, and obviously, it means that Medicare rebates can flow, but suddenly you've got professional responsibility. And I think the key here for a lot of these kind of management approaches that you're alluding to is the doctor still needs to stay involved. I, I think what the role of the GP is in these services is to, yes, write a referral for the level two sleep study, which is what it would probably be if it's going to be Medicare rebated. But the key is the doctor has to then see the patient with that result and then have that discussion about the symptoms, the test result, and the management. And if they're not comfortable doing that, then mm. they need to refer that to a specialist. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any shortcuts. That's the key. Whereas if, if a doctor refers a patient for a level two sleep study and lets that management happen completely by the corporate provider, mm. you don't know what you're allowing. That corporate provider may be excellent, provide spot-on care, but mm. they may not be. There's no standards to assess their training or accreditation. That might be the second week on the job of, and maybe, and there's not a lot of training programs here either. So you can't be certain who's managing them clinically. I say clinically inverted commas. And I think when you asked your question about who's responsible, if something comes unstuck there, the only doctor in the equation is that GP that gave the referral. And I think you're on really dangerous territory um, if you've given a referral and not followed up your patient. And of course, you, you don't want to be in that situation for a million reasons, including you want to manage your patient. And you need to discuss things like driving and, and dealt with the driving issue. Because I can also bet you the moment they've sold a CPAP machine to that severe apnea, they're not going to be asking questions about driving and driving risk or mentioning a license. Mm. And, and let's say an accident does happen. Well, it might come back to the GP. Well, how are you monitoring your patient? They're all very reasonable questions that, that a lawyer could ask. And they could ask of the sleep physician too, if I'm involved. So I think the key is you don't order a chest X-ray or a CT and expect the radiologist company to manage your patient, do you? 
True. And, and we've always been told as GPs that we really should be looking at the x-rays in the context of the patient in front of you anyway. So you're absolutely right, um, Anup. You know, should we be really organizing a test of which the results we don't fully understand and then make recommendations on top of that? Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. So I, I don't think if, if people are not comfortable to manage the test result or, or discuss sleep symptoms or the range of diagnosis or treatments, then they probably shouldn't be doing it because they're leaving themselves vulnerable and they're giving their patients a disservice because they'll get various opinions from non-medical people without medical qualifications that may not actually be correct. And I say that kind of politely, but essentially it is the key to medicine. You know, it is a humanistic you know, discipline where we have responsibility to manage our patients. And just to whet our appetite for the next podcast, which is going to look at interpreting a sleep study uh, for GPs, what really are the key things that a sleep study shows? Just briefly. So the, the key things that the GPs are looking for, I think really is, do they have obstructive sleep apnea or not? And what severity is the apnea? But there's a whole lot of discussion around that because as we've alluded to, there's different types of sleep studies, some of them more or less accurate, some more or less convenient. And, and of course, um, we need to understand with time, well, what is severe apnea? And then what are the symptoms that would be associated with that? So the, the, the simple conclusion is, is probably the conclusion that the, the reporting doctor will write on it about the severity of the apnea. But the bigger issue is, well, how does that inform my management? And that's Very the harder, harder question, to be honest. And to be fair to GPs and everyone that works in this area, as I said before at the beginning, I don't think sleep history is taught. And it isn't taught. And you please tell me if I'm wrong. And this is the problem. So how do we expect GPs or even other physicians to manage these conditions that they've never been taught? Um, so I say all this information in a very um, pragmatic and kind of um, you know, firm way, but I also sympathise with the other side where the burden of management is in the vast, vast majority of doctors that weren't trained or informed. And hopefully things like this podcast, of course, will be informative and help people understand and read up themselves. And there's certainly more knowledge coming through in general. But I do feel for people that aren't in my speciality that are managing sleep conditions for all the reasons that I've just said to you. And several things. The first is that I thank you for articulating, if you like, the elephant in the room. Uh, most of us as GPs deal with these problems daily and we deal with different levels of confidence and competence and experience. So you really touch on an important point there. I would like you to just summarise what we have quickly looked at today in this podcast. And I look forward to the next interview with you with regard to the specifics of a sleep study. Yes, thanks, David. So look, I think the key aspects of today's podcast is we've really spent a fair bit of time at the start talking about how to take a sleep history. And I'm hoping that I identified the three aspects there, which is asking about sleep timing, sleep duration, talking about sleepiness and some of the causes and, and talking about particular sleep disorders. But the point is that history is about capturing as much information that will help you diagnose the condition. Just like for someone that's got respiratory symptoms, you're going to ask about fevers, you're going to ask about wheeze, you're going to ask about um, when the symptoms began. There's a whole lot of questions you've already got in your armamentarium that helps you formulate diagnosis. And you were taught that. But no one was taught perhaps what I just said. So unfortunately, we need to learn as we go about how to take the history that's going to be relevant to your patients and to start to tease out the range of respiratory and non-respiratory disorders 
it can cause daytime tiredness and sleepiness. We moved on from that and talked a little bit about laboratory testing, the usefulness of daytime tests, the multiple sleep latency test for people with primary hypersomnolence conditions. And I've also talked about how maintenance of wakefulness test, a daytime alertness test, can help us with some of those difficult hyper, uh, hypersomnolent cases that, that are refusing treatment, not on treatment, um, or even are on treatment to confirm the alertness during the day. We've touched upon at the end, David, um, the importance of not just managing a test result and the importance of the whole clinical picture to how you manage your patient and the importance of GPs to, to get involved in their patient's care and not accept a third-party operator unless they're another doctor that's seeing the patient. You're happy to delegate your responsibility to them, say a specialist. But if there's no other doctors there, you need to be managing your patient because you're the doctor. And, and this is about respect for your own profession too, if I may say. Um, and if, if it's too hard and too complicated, then, then let's just go the more conventional pathways and let's make sure the patients are getting looked after and that at least the people that are managing them can be held to account in a very medical sense. Um, and I think that's really important. And, and I say that as a sleep physician, but I say that as a person that sees lots of patients weekly that are coming unstuck through some of these other processes. And I won't bore you with all the anecdotes, but every two days I say to my staff, my God, this is what they said to that patient. You know, and I am a little bit in shock even now at some of the things that are going on. So um, again, I, I need to be careful here and you know, perhaps others will criticize me, but I think it really is important. We need to understand that sleep medicine, sleep disorders are medical conditions. They have important outcomes, alertness, sleepiness, driving, accident risk, occupational risk, blood pressure, heart disease, stroke risk. We need to diagnose them correctly, test them correctly, manage them correctly, give patients a range of treatments, give them fair, decent care. You have touched on so many important points, and I thank you so much, I know, for giving us the very clear tool of how to take a history, uh, and, and that is crucial to all of us. It's like being a mechanic without a spanner. You know, how, what, what do you do? Uh, so thank you for giving us a tool. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your teaching. Thanks a lot, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.